0: You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. All right, I have a confession, or more just a declaration. I love a heist movie. More than anything, the heist movies. And you might be familiar with a couple of these. You got the Ocean's 11, then 12, then 13, then down to eight, the all-women cast. It was awesome. There's a heist movie. There's something missing. There's money they need, and they need to get it. We also got uh, the Avengers got in on it. Endgame's just one long heist movie. Uh, (laughs) It is. Or my my personal favorite lately, Andor, which hits my whole bingo card because it's a heist movie that turns into a prison break movie. And I mean, if you hit both, you know you have multiple viewings from me. And these heist movies, they have a predictable thing. There's a problem. The heist is the solution. Therefore, we need to recruit the team. There's this assembling the team. We gotta get this guy and this gal because they, they have the special skill or they have the special insight. We gotta pull together. Then there's a montage of them planning and preparing and what are we gonna do? Then it's the night of the heist. It never happens in the day, only at night the heist happens and the people have to make a heart-wrenching choice. Maybe they're crooks, maybe they're heroes, but there's a heart-aching choice. The mission or a member of my team. Always, (laughs) always. And we are in that period of the gospel of Luke, specifically the assembling the team phase. That's what they're doing. In Luke 5, they're calling Peter to follow Simon Peter Peter follows after the miraculous catch of fish. So does his brother Andrew. So does James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They all drop the nets and follow Jesus. Likewise, last week we met the villains of the story, story, at least the human villains. The Pharisees really show up for the first time. And they are these religious teachers of the law who come to see Jesus not to worship him, not to follow him, not to learn from him, but to criticize him. And this criticism will grow into a seething, boiling anger throughout the book of Luke, so much so that they will be the ones who plot to kill Jesus. That will be used by the chief villain of the story, the devil. But in this, at closing out Luke 5, Jesus calls the fifth disciple. He's going to call Levi right out of his workplace. And Levi is also called Matthew. This man is going to go from lost and at a tax booth to a gospel writer by the end of his life, the gospel of Matthew. Look at verse 27. It says, after this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And this doesn't seem all that shocking because we imagine tax collectors like the guy at H&R Block with like a nice pair of slacks right out here on Roebuck Parkway. And you're like, he's not so bad. This guy's just trying to, you know, make it a little easier with the IRS. He's helpful, if anything. But I want us to understand a little deeper than maybe you've ever heard or gone. Because tax collectors, there actually was a bunch of different types in the first century Israel. There wasn't just one type because the Romans had conquered this whole area, all of this Near East, Near Middle East area, all of North Africa, all of pretty much all of Europe by this point. And what they did once they conquered is they came back to the one percenters of the conquered people and said, hey, guys, I know we conquered, but I know you're rich. You want a piece of this action? And they held an auction. And they said, uh, we think about this much money will come out of taxes here. So how about you pay us in advance and now you one percenter, have the right to tax your own people to recoup your loss and more. So they literally bought and sold their own people. And the Romans didn't have to do the dirty work and empower them with the authority to take taxes and with no supervision, take whatever tax they really wanted. And these wealthy people, of their own people, well, they're not going door to door. They're the one percenters. So they actually then would buy, say, North Capernaum, 1,000 households of taxes, and then sell it off street by street to just contractors. Contractor like Levi, who would kind of just hang around on the street, shaking people down for money, kind of being the neighborhood menace exacting more than he needed to pad his pocket, more than was allowed to pad the wealthy person's pocket. So you see this collection of taxes was not for fair governance or civic duty or to help anyone. It was system on a system of oppression that ended up with a guy like Levi basically being like uh, a mobster uh, crossed with a crooked tax clerk. And imagine who would jump at this opportunity. The bully from high school, the outsider in high school who's finally ready to pin on a fake badge and carry around a baseball bat, threatening people with what the Roman soldiers will do to them if they don't obey. Levi was hated for betraying his people. Levi was hated for not working like everyone else. Be similar to us, like we see a scammer, like get a job, man, come on. Don't be scamming people for money. He was hated that he's maybe even taxing the people on the same street he grew up on. He's the worst guy in town. And Jesus looks at the worst and says, verse 27, he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. And we see that Jesus invites the worst people to come follow him. Which means perhaps the best part about Jesus is he sees the worst in us and draws near with gentle, redeeming love. You don't have to hide from Jesus. You don't have to hide that thing. You don't have to hide that season of life. You don't have to hide what's going on in your life right now from Jesus. A, he already knows, and two, he wants to draw near with gentle, redeeming love that transforms us from the inside out, just like Levi. He couldn't find a bigger sinner, and he calls him. He calls him to himself. Jesus is readying a team for the greatest heist of all time, Jesus' plan is to steal us from the devil and bring us to himself. And he's not looking for superstars on the team or special skills. He's actually just looking for humble hearts. He's looking for people who know they are broken, who know they are simple, and know that they need a savior. And Levi the worst follows Jesus the best without any questions. Jesus isn't saying, come to me with your spiritual resume, and maybe you'll get an interview. Jesus is saying, follow me because you have deep need of me. Follow me and don't be worried about what anyone else thinks. They're irrelevant to the discussion. Levi's immediate response isn't shame, it isn't worry, it's joy. and He throws a party. This is a turn of events for this man. Look what it says in verse 29. It says, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. A great feast. He couldn't order this from a place. This was an all-day call. Everyone I know to help assemble a meal that could be called a feast. For who? There was a large company of tax collectors, the other contractors, maybe a boss in there, and others, probably the same street he's been taxing, reclining at the table with him. Levi invites everyone he knows to come meet the God who loves them. When you're loved, you want to throw a party. You don't throw parties for people you don't love or not loved by. You go to a wedding, it's special because everyone there loves you and is for you and it's something to celebrate. You go to a birthday, it's something to celebrate. And for Levi, though he doesn't know it really, he's coming to know, this is his spiritual birthday party. And he says, everyone is welcome. See, when we feel and know the forgiveness of God, it's infectious. We want everyone to know. See, but when we struggle with evangelism, it's often not a tactics issue. It's a gospel issue. The greatest evangelist is the one who intimately knows their need for Jesus and is experiencing his love. When the gospel is fire in your heart, then it's gonna be fresh on your lips. Amen? Amen. And hanging on the door, hanging on the windows, the Pharisees and the scribes start to grumble. Who's throwing this party? Is Jesus in there? With who? This is Levi's house, right? What are they doing in there? They're feasting. There's wines out, water's out, meat's on the table. People are buzzing around. And the Pharisees hanging in the doorframe say this. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Notice they come at Jesus's new followers to try to get at Jesus and discredit him. They're mocking Jesus because there's a concept in their culture, which is very similar to ours, called table fellowship. It meant if we were gonna share a table together, especially in a home, that we're friends, that we trust each other, that we have a relationship that means we can be associated with one another. And it was a matter of great trust, because remember in a world without reliable police and without security systems, if someone knows where you live and sleep, There's a vulnerability being exchanged just to have this meal in a home together. And the Pharisees believed, among other sinners, tax collectors should be denied fellowship at all cost. That they should never be at your table if you are a good Jew. In the Jewish Talmud, a commentary on the Old Testament, it placed tax collectors right alongside robbers and murderers. The Pharisee believed that tax collector belongs in prison, not at anyone's table. That tax collector definitely does not belong in the presence of God. In order to keep themselves separate and in their mind, keep themselves pure, they wanted to stay away from these sinners. And they believed the world before God looks like this. This is the world of the Pharisee. They believe the world is full of good, bad, and ugly people, and only they were really good ones. God's over here, and I do everything right, so I'm with God. Over here is kind of the bad. These are the everyday Jews on the street. These are the people who are like kind of obeying the Torah, at least in the Pharisees' mind, like, eh, they're not really doing everything right, but, you know, they go to synagogue, you know, whatever. They're fine. And the ugly over here was kind of professional sinners in their eyes, tax collectors, people working as prostitutes, people who are murderers, things like that, and Gentiles, virtually all of us, would say these people don't even need to be associated with. It would be scandalous to even be around these people who are virtually irredeemable in their eyes. They believed essentially in salvation, through segregation, and church, that is as rough as it sounds. We don't have to think very long or think very hard to see the great damage that segregationist thinking does to a society. Amen? And the Pharisees' whole life revolved around this. See, the Pharisees actually didn't call each other Pharisees. They would not want to call each other Pharisees, that's a name that's been given to them. A Pharisee actually called one another Habraim, which means the faithful ones. They saw themselves as the only ones who are good. And Pharisee actually comes from the Hebrew word pharos. It's what the neighborhood called them. And pharos means the separate ones, the others. The people who are not known for God as they think they are but known from who they keep away from. And that's the term the Bible uses for them, that that was the more true identity, was not faithful one, but separate one. And Jesus, from his seat, blows their mind. They're talking to the disciples, and Jesus is hearing them and talks straight to them in a loud, clear, authoritative, but kind voice. Cuts across the party. This is their record scratch moment at dinner. Verse 31. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Repentance. Jesus is saying segregation, their way of religion, saves no one, but salvation comes through association with me. And he quotes this to break their heart. The Pharisees who knew the Bible well, knew the Old Testament well, is he referring to Exodus 15, when God has declared the healer of our diseases. They're meant to see that they too need this healing of God, to be in relationship with God. He is doctor and we are his creatures, his patients. And in this scenario, and the truth is the world isn't good, bad, and ugly. They had it wrong. But rather, Jesus is holy and we are not. And it looks like this there is one holy and perfect God in Jesus. And then there's the rest of us. Romans 3.23 captures it so well. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may be different degrees of bad in your behavior, but you ain't Jesus. So when Jesus says, "I've, I've called to come the sick, I've called to come the sinners, he means everybody. The only reason you're missing it, Pharisees, is you suppose you are righteous before me. But before a holy God, just like we saw two weeks ago, Man, even the prophets fall on their knees and say, I'm a man of unclean lips. Everyone needs redemption in the Bible, not just some people. There's not good and bad and ugly. There's a holy God and an unholy people. And that's it. And in this scenario, you see, Jesus is not a doctor waiting in an office somewhere, hoping patients will come by. He's a missionary doctor looking for the weak, the weary, those who can't walk, the sick, the brokenhearted. He's out there casting his net, fishing for you, fishing for whoever will respond in faith, finding Levi's on the left and right, finding fishermen, finding faithful women who put their faith in him. And Jesus is healing them from the inside out to save them, but also to make room at his table. This is a picture of saying you're not just transactionally saved before God, but you are relationally brought in to have a relationship with God that starts in your life now, but actually is building towards an eternal feast. The picture we get in the Bible is worshiping God in heaven, eating with God in heaven, celebrating with God in heaven, working with God in heaven. So when we start that life here on earth, we're looking towards eternity saying we're just getting started. We're in like the pre-appetizer phase. There is a feast coming that's going to blow our minds. And guess who's invited? Everybody. And whoever responds is welcome. Pulls out a chair at the table and he's never going to lack a spot. The gospel transforms the chart two situation into the reality we live here with chart three. I love a chart if you're new to this church. (laughs) Jesus remains holy. Sinners are sinners. But when you believe you are now one with Christ, you're part of the church. Do you still sin? Are you still a sinner? Yep. But your primary identity is no longer sinner, but saint. Not because of the good works you do, but by the good work Christ has done in you. This is how Jesus can sit with sinners. Just how Jesus can sit with sinners, both connecting with them as friends and calling them to himself. He's not outside of the door saying, hey, all the sinners in this party, come follow me outside. He's in the house connecting to people and calling them to repentance. That's the model of his ministry. It's the model of the church. Church, we are to be a people calling sinners to Jesus, also acknowledging we still sin. We are not above it or beyond it, but hopefully growing from it. And when Jesus' grace sinks in, we realize three things here. First, we realize Jesus loves who you tend to hate. Whoever you perceive as your worst enemy is actually a loved person by God. And that's a lot to take down. When you start to think of the people who've hurt you, who've gossiped about you, who've forsaken you, the boss that denies you, that person is actually loved by Jesus. And that's an uncomfortable grace and truth of God that God loves the Levites, the worst guy in town. But he also loves us. And this might be a newsflash but someone hates you. Someone thinks you're terrible. You're someone's worst enemy. I can't believe that God would love them and done this in their life. It's not just Levi's story. It's a story of every faithful follower of Jesus. And it's why we can be bold and go knock on people's door and invite them because God's actually done something in my life. That's why Levi can throw a party because God did something in his life. There's nothing to celebrate if God doesn't do anything. Second, Jesus's grace means you need to go to the sinner's party. Better yet, you need to throw a party inviting followers of Jesus and sinners. A party is Jesus's party when the lost, the found, the confused, the hurting people are present. A healthy church has that on a Sunday. It has it in a CG. That is what we're aiming towards and looking towards, that when we gather together, there's also people who are wondering what's going on. Do we join in sin? By no means. Jesus is not sinning. He is holy forever. But he also connects with people with ease. And he also calls them to himself. Is it okay that people belong to you in friendship before they believe? Is it okay, even godly and preferable, that people who are far from God can belong to you in friendship long before they believe with the great hope of connecting and continually calling them to belong to Jesus ultimately? A great example of this is my friend Josh Sigler in the Brittle Bones Brigade, a skateboard club here in Birmingham, Alabama, that has blossomed and blossomed and blossomed and runs him into relationship with all sorts of folks that in his normal routine of home and work, there's only so many people he's gonna interact with. And I know Josh, he's already invited all those people to church and into his life, got some yeses, got some noes, but now he has a whole nother way where he is saying, hey, I'm going to connect with you. I'm also calling you by my life and my words to follow Jesus too. That's a model of what Jesus is doing. It's a model of how to view your workplace, how to view your neighborhood, how to view your extended family, how to view your life in that prison, not prison, prism, that the Venn diagram is true. Yeah, not a prison. We're breaking out of this. Third, Ongoing access to Jesus is directly tied to seeing your need for Jesus. If everyone needs Jesus, and when we follow Jesus, we begin to see our need for Jesus more and more, and Jesus fills us with grace more and more, that's the intimacy between us and God. The greater you see your need for Jesus, the more you're gonna want more Jesus. And the more God gives you grace, the more you're gonna see your need for Jesus. It's an endless circle that you would continue in intimacy with him. And the Pharisees, they're self-righteous and it gets in the way. They believe their superior works, their superior ways make them righteous over everyone else and they miss Jesus. They miss them all together. And I don't want us to miss Jesus for a second. Your growth is seeing how deep your need is and how great God's grace is. And it flips here. The Pharisees stop attacking the disciples and flip to attack Jesus by criticizing his followers now. It's like they tried the front door, let's try the back door. Verse 33, and they said to him, the disciples of John, talking about John the Baptist, they fast often and offer prayers. So do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And what they're doing is they're referencing who was more famous at the time. We think it's Jesus. It's like, man, he's the most famous guy I know. Not then. John the Baptist was this huge religious celebrity. He wasn't courting it or seeking it, but he's out in the wilderness. And it says the old countryside was coming to the man. So they're saying, John the Baptist, come on, Jesus. They're fasting, they're praying, they're going to the temple offering prayers. And here you are just having a glass of wine and feasting with a bunch of sinners you're a fraud, Jesus. Jesus replies, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they, my disciples, will fast in those days. Jesus is this bridegroom. They've been waiting all of history for the Messiah, God himself, to show up, and he's finally here. Now is not the time for fasting and prayer to seek God's presence, because he's literally in the house. You have access to God. He's having dinner with you. And what he's pointing out to the Pharisees is that our spiritual practices are to bring us to the presence of God. The point of a spiritual practice isn't the spiritual practice. We don't worship to worship. We worship to be in the presence of God. We don't pray just to pray. We pray to be in the presence of God that he hears us and is ministering to us. We don't listen to the word to be entertained from the pulpit up here and, oh, Justin's funny or this or that. We do it to be spiritually fed, believing the presence of God is present in God's word and is feeding us. He's saying it's not about the spiritual practices. It's about the goal, and I'm the goal, and I'm right here. One day, my disciples should fast and pray because I'm not gonna be physically with them. They will spiritually seek me, but not today. And this is the critical error of the Pharisees overall because they took their practices so seriously, but they weren't really the Bible's practices. They were their own practices stacked on top of the Bible, they followed a whole other system of trying to obey the Bible and put all these other practices, and they focused so much on these other practices, they actually miss taking God's word very seriously. That's what Jesus critiques them on all the time. And this led to them trusting themselves, their practices, instead of trusting God. And that's what self-righteousness is, that my works make me right with God. And Jesus is happily declaring that he is the very presence of God. And to be with Jesus is the goal of spiritual life and the goal of all of life. When you come to church on Sunday, go to CG or open your Bible at home, I want you eager for the presence of God. Don't go through the motions. That's the religion of Judas. That's the religion of these Pharisees who will kill Jesus. Going through the motions is deadly. Will you have a profound spiritual experience every time you seek God? Probably not. But we seek with an expectant heart, saying that God longs to be with us. That if we ask, we seek, we knock, he will answer. Amen? That God longs to be with you and invite you inside the house. We often talk about chasing or running after God, but picture in the Bible is a God who's already run after us. He longs to be with you. Use your practices as a tool, not the end goal. They're a tool, not the end goal. And in order to get this idea, Jesus is the center of their religion. Jesus reminds them with two quick lessons, and they're both a little confusing in our culture, so we'll need a little explaining. But verse 36 says this, he told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, it will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine in an old wineskin. They use the skin of goats and, and sheep to hold their wine, not just when it was ready, but to let it ferment, let it cook in there, get it nice and whiny, all right? And when things ferment, they expand with the gases and such. So no one, if he does, the new wine will burst the skins as it ferments, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking the old desires the new, for he says the old is good. For us, you don't put a new patch on old jeans because the new patch will shrink over time and rip itself from the old genes and rip the patch itself. In the same way, new wine fermented in these skins of the old The old skin's not stretchy, so as the wine expands and the gas expands, it's gonna rip and spoil the wine, it's gonna seep out. So what he's telling them is that new wine needs fresh wineskins to continue to expand when it's matured, but we also need new clothes. What's all this mean? Jesus is a new thing. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, so in another way, he's not new, he's eternal. But for these Pharisees, It's such a big change, it's gonna feel like a brand new thing. They can't keep going the way they've been going and just patch Jesus on top. He's not a a prophet. He's not just another guy in the line. He's not like an app update on our phone. He's a whole new operating system. And if the Pharisees just try to tack Jesus on at the end, it's not gonna work. They're gonna have to accept Jesus is now the center of their religion. And this is a huge shift, because think about it. The temple was the center of their religion. The temple will be burned to the ground in 30 years, and Jesus is now our new temple who we worship. That's a shift. They used to have to make blood sacrifices at that temple, day after day, year after year, a religion that's been in place for thousands of years. There is now one sacrifice coming on the cross for good. That's a shift. They used to belong to this precious land of Israel, gifted by God in the Old Testament. To be Jewish in many ways was to be a part of this land and enjoy the promise of being here, even as conquered by the Romans. And that's gonna shift. That belonging to God means following Jesus and being part of God's church. These are big shifts for the Pharisees' world and mind. And so we need to keep all that in mind, but also remember, we're not Pharisees. Those aren't our shifts. None of us have lived in Israel for years and years, and now everything's shifting. But there's shifts to Jesus's unfamiliar ways for us too. And there's three, I think, as we read this passage, I would like our church to consider and embrace. And the first shift is this, to his unfamiliar ways, that Jesus is saving by grace, and there's simply no other way that any part of us that wants to cling to our works to prove ourselves to God, it needs to end. Anything we hold on to to prove ourselves before God, it just needs to go. It doesn't matter what your parents think. It doesn't matter uh, that you have perfect church attendance. It doesn't matter that you're a better person than the person in the office next to you. It doesn't matter that you happen to curse less than the next person. The thing that justifies you before God, that makes you acceptable before God, is Jesus. Now, do we do holy lives from that? Yes, but they don't make us acceptable to God. This makes the presence of God the point of spiritual life all the time. Second, Jesus picks needy people to be his disciples not superstars. Jesus picks needy people to be his disciples, not superstars. The rabbis of this era would go around forming a discipleship train behind them, you know, 10, 12, some of these young men, and they would go town to town and find the smartest, academically strongest man of the most moral fiber at about 15, and invite him to follow him for the next 15 years till he's 30. And they would take the best of the best. And it was a matter of great pride for your family to produce a son who was gonna be a rabbi. That was big deal. And Jesus is not picking superstars. He's picking fishermen and tax collectors so far, which is good news for you and I. The church, church leadership, it's not for the gifted program. It's for everyone. It's for sinners like you and I. It gives us a spot on the team too. That God's great plan is to use you, whether you have tons of skills or not a ton. It doesn't matter. Jesus is recruiting people he loves apart from their works. Number three, we must relearn everything in light of following Jesus. And this is a self-reflection question to ask yourself, are there ways of life that I used to live that I've carried over into following Jesus that I'm pretty much holding on to my old jeans or my old wineskin? skin, and I get frustrated every time I pour new wine in it or try to patch it? The ways of my old life, of how I do my finances, my work habits, my sexuality... How you do friendships, how you even think about yourself, how you forgive, how you hold commitments in your schedule. Are there areas of your life that you're refusing to say, I just need a whole new wineskin if I'm gonna embrace the new wine of Jesus? And you know you're at a struggle point that every time you try to put a patch on it, it eventually bursts and you're frustrated. You try to make some budget adjustments, but it doesn't work because wholesale you haven't said, I trust you completely, God, with my finances. Therefore, they can change. Just making a tiny add-on, it just gets busted over and over when the wine ferments. Or maybe it's friendships. I wanna do friendships by keeping score with people all the time. But wait a minute, God calls me to love people unconditionally. And every time I try to do both, the wineskin bursts. Or maybe it's your dating life. Maybe it's the marriage life. Are you willing to say, Jesus, your ways, your wine, your skins, and it doesn't matter what I used to do because now I don't follow me anymore. I'm not the leader of my life. My son takes such pride in being the line leader. He tells me every time it's his turn, Dad, I'm the line leader. I'm doing a great job. I go, tell me about it. He's like, we got the cafeteria and back. I didn't lose anybody. It's like, way to go, Tyler. Will Jesus be the line leader of your life? even in the parts that feel, man, but my family always did this growing up. Cool, maybe there's something to redeem and celebrate there. Maybe there's something to just forsake. Say, yeah, but that was wrong because I follow Jesus now. Church, we need new wineskins and new wine to relearn every area of our life, to follow Jesus with all of our hearts. Jesus is more than a patch. We need new clothes, new wine, new skins. Jesus is the doctor who comes to the sick by grace alone to the needy alone and transforms everything about us. I challenge you in worship today. Feel the joy of Levi to be called Matthew. Just worship with great joy. Some people are cut to the heart. Maybe you need to worship with tears today. But respond to a God who's come for you. For Jesus alone saves.